This show is supported by three awesome Bitcoin companies. The first is Shift Crypto. They make the Bitbox O2 Bitcoin-only hardware wallet. If you're new to Bitcoin and you're looking for a way to take self-custody of your Bitcoin, which you absolutely should be doing, this is a very good option. It's very easy to set up. It's very easy to use. Very slick interface. A great option to get you started on your self-custody journey. Visit shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapidfire to learn more about the product and get 5% off. Next up is the Bitcoin 2022 conference. The 2021 conference was amazing. One of the best experiences of my life. And it's going down again in Miami, April 6th to the 9th. But this time, instead of in Wynwood and a 13,000 person capacity, it's happening on Miami Beach and a 35,000 person capacity. I can't even begin to imagine how amazing it's going to be. There's always a ton of peripheral events and parties and extra stuff going on around the conference. And you get to meet so many awesome people at the conference itself. It really is tremendous. If you've never been to a Bitcoin conference before, this is the one to go to. So check out their website and at checkout, use the code RAPIDFIRE and get 10% off. And finally, the awesome people at bullbitcoin.com. If you're looking to buy Bitcoin in Canada, this is an amazing option. Have a look into them. They are a privacy-focused, non-custodial exchange, which means you buy Bitcoin through them, and then the Bitcoin goes directly to your own custody solution, which in my opinion is the most secure way to purchase Bitcoin. Also soon, they'll be offering a white glove service for international clients. So for people that may seem that the setting up their own custody solution is a little bit daunting, they'll be there to hold your hand to get you set up in the best way possible. So keep track of their website for updates on when those services will be available. Boom. Live. George, how you doing, man? I'm extremely well. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, thank you for coming. It's um I've been listening to you a bunch lately because it seems you've been, you know, I've I've always I've appreciated your content for a while, I should say, but lately you've been getting more worked up as the world is getting increasingly, you know, <laughs> insane. And you know, we're all watching this and wondering, one, man, what the hell is going on? And two, what to do about it, right? And so hopefully. Yeah. Today, we can discuss uh, a bit about those two things. But first, maybe for people that aren't familiar with you, uh, if you can int introduce yourself briefly. Excuse me. Yeah, my name is George Gammon. I started a YouTube channel. Uh, it took me a long time to figure out a name, but the name was Gammon, very creative. And that was, uh, I believe, July or August of 2019. And then in 2020, prior to the whole Cerveza sickness thing, uh, I started a show called the Rebel Capitalist Show. The main thrust of the YouTube channel were whiteboard videos and just explaining macroeconomic things that were kind of happening. We're going over the repo market and QE, the yield curve and the real estate market. And then I started interviewing people that I really respected in the macro space and entrepreneurs and people who value freedom, libertarians. I've interviewed Ron Paul as an example, Tom Woods. And uh, that was called the Rebel Capitalist Show. So uh, what we did was rip the audio for that. Now we turn it into a podcast uh, that's on iTunes and Stitcher. And that gets uh, something like 50,000 downloads a week or something like that. And then more recently, I started another YouTube channel called Rebel Capitalist. And uh, this is where I go on live just like this, maybe Sometimes even seven times a day, I did one <laughs> the other week where Shit. I did seven <laughs> videos in one day, uh, probably overexposing myself. But uh, 
we're just really talking about macro, but we're also talking about what's happening in the world, uh, news. It's, it's kind of almost like zero hedge where mm-hmm. it's just freedom, liberty, um, but then, you know, finance, investing, gold, Bitcoin, crypto, et cetera. Yeah. You know, I'm looking behind you. I see the road to serfdom. I see 1984. I see economics in one lesson, Atlas Shrugged. Has yeah. that sort of libertarian freedom bent always been something that has kind of animated your work and your philosophy, or has it emerged more recently in response to, let's say, the opposite emerging in the world? No, I've always been very skeptical of authority. Uh, I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid, and I almost flunked out of high school. Yeah, but I was always fighting with teachers and just always fighting with authority just uh, for whatever reason. You know, it was funny is we never talked about politics in my house at all. Uh, I think I had one conversation with my father, and this is, you know, when he was really up there in years. And I said, uh, we were watching some show, and I said, Dad, what was your favorite uh, polit- or your favorite president? And, you know, my father was very old. Uh, he was born in 1914. And he was in, you know, flew planes in World War II in the Philippines. And so he had seen a lot of presidents in his day. And uh, he looked at me, and he always called me Georgie Boy. He says, Georgie Boy, none of them. Said, well, what do you mean, none of them? There's got to be one that was your favorite. It's like, nope. And I said, why? why? Why don't you at least have a favorite president? He looks at me and says, because they're all crooks. but but fast forward to 2000 uh i think nine and he passed in in 2005 but 2009 we had a a family reunion now most of these cousins and aunts and all these relatives i had never seen most of them uh and then the ones that i had met just maybe twice you know when i was a little kid and obviously we weren't talking about politics but what i found fascinating and this was a gammon family reunion by the way on my dad's side and there were probably like 100 or 150 people there and as you kind of go out and meet with everyone almost every single one of them was libertarian but yet none of us had ever talked to each other about it and i i found that really kind of fascinating that uh just the, the way the gammons are hardwired for some reason, we just value liberty and freedom uh, at birth. <laughs> <laughs> Running through your vein. Did you talk to any of them and ask them, you know, why they felt that way? You know, for you, it's, it's, it seems maybe kind of obvious if your dad kind of imprints you with that disregard for the institution of the presidency or the authority or the characters that were there, you kind of get it, right? But was there any kind of, you know, thread that connected all of your relatives like that? I don't think so. It's just the, the way we were raised. We just all really value our, 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 not just the liberty and freedom, but we value that mindset of just being kind of the rugged individual and self-reliant mm-hmm. and not taking handouts from everyone, anyone. And just, if you got problems, you just pull yourself up and you kind of dust yourself off and uh, you just work harder. And uh, that, that was kind of instilled uh, with me at a very young age. And I think that was instilled with a lot of my uh, relatives, you know, because at some point you kind of come from the same family tree and that's passed down from generation to generation to generation. So I think that's kind of why we were, were leaning that way in the first place. Yeah. You know, one of the just bizarre things about our time. It, there's, there's such a, 
lack of appreciation for liberty in this day and age, it seems. You know, the whole, the importance of it, the value of it, the philosophy behind it, that just a generation ago, people literally fought and died for. And, you know, throughout the course of history, there's all sorts of people that, you know, talk about the necessity, the importance, the value of freedom. And in the current climate that we're in, a huge portion of the population just seems to have no appreciation for it whatsoever. Well, they, they scoff at it and yeah. they make fun of it. I mean, look at Howard Stern. So I used to love Stern, but he comes out and just echoes exactly what Arnold Schwarzenegger was saying. With, with no real, I mean, you can tell by what they say that they really haven't done any research above and beyond listening to CNN about the mandates or, right. you know, the efficacy of the, I don't know if this is, this is on YouTube, the efficacy of, we'll call it the medicine, just keep it YouTube friendly here, or the, uh, you, you know, the downside, the actual risks of, uh, we'll call it the cerveza sickness. Uh, th there's no intellectual debate. You can tell they haven't really gone to the extent of researching it. Um, and it's just, it's pathetic. Where When you hear these people that have, well, I would say used to have large followings, um, just say, you know, freedom be damned. That, uh, you know, F your freedom, I think is what Howard Stern said. And yeah. Schwarzenegger said something to the, the same, uh, you know, with the same effect. But I think the good news there is that those guys are, they're old news. They're, they're yeah. antiquated. I don't think they have the pull that they used to have, although they're obviously very famous individuals. I think the, the Joe Rogans of the world have a far greater influence than uh, Howard Stern does now. And, uh, you know, fortunately, there's people in that camp that uh, believe in individualism. And, uh, you know, I was at the New Orleans Investment Conference last week speaking. And one of the things that you see playing out, and I see this on my live streams as well, we, we've gone into this day and age where I don't think it's about Republican, Democrat, blue, red. It really doesn't have anything to do with it. it there's really two camps. And the two camps are, are, are you pro authoritarianism or are you pro individualism yeah that that's really the two groups of people that are kind of forming right now and thank goodness there's people like rogan that obviously are anti-authoritarianism regardless of, of what they believe on about welfare or ubi or any of those matters yeah i mean i agree they'd never characterize themselves that way right but they would the the they they're part of the collective and they believe in making decisions from a collective point of view rather than from an individual point of view. Right. And I agree. Yeah, but That's know, authoritarianism and central planning. I mean, I was totally doing a live agree. stream last night and you've got to think about the mindset of someone who believes in central planning, you know, someone who believes that government should have more power and control. What, what, what is their rationale? And they would admit this. They would say, well, we just can't let the individuals, in society make their own decisions we'll, we'll use the mandates the medicine mandates i mean the, the premise for that is people are just too dumb to make their own decisions right so we the intelligentsia the enlightened group the politicians we need to uh force them to do x y and z for not only their benefit but for the benefit of society at large 
because we're just smarter than they are. That, that's the premise of central planning. And that type of mindset goes straight back to eugenics. You know, we forget in the United States that that was a very dark part of our history in the early 1900s. And that you, you can, I'll try to keep it YouTube friendly, but there is a very, uh, we'll call him infamous politician in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, hopefully you guys know who I'm referring to. Uh, he wrote a book that is very <laughs> well known. And in his book, he you know, basically thanked the United States for enlightening him and opening his eyes on eugenics. And obviously he took that ball and, and ran with it. And so, and we even have Supreme Court decisions in the United States here. Uh, I would reference the 1927 decision with uh, Buck versus Bell, where the Supreme Court actually legalized eugenics and forced sterilizations. You know, so, so that's been a part of the, the U.S. history. And we look back on it, on it in just horror. We're just, we cannot believe that we actually did something like that in this country but yet if you look at the mindset it's the exact same the people who believed in eugenics that was their that was their argument well there's a group of people that are just better than the other people genetically or for whatever reason we're just smarter we're better for these reasons therefore we need to force sterilizations on the three generations of imbeciles. And I'm using that word intentionally because the Supreme Court justice who argued, you know, when they make the decision, who argued for their case and explained it, that's what he said, literally. He says, we need to end three generations of imbeciles by forcing them to become sterilized, right? Taking on a medical procedure. And so, you know, again, why are they doing that? Because they believe that there is a group of people that are intellectually superior to others and therefore need to make those decisions for the quote unquote imbeciles. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that's exactly what we're doing today. Exactly. That the state of New York or the, you know, de Blasio, let's use New York as an example, is coming out and saying, well, we're going to have this mandate. Why? Because those imbeciles out in the real economy, they're just too dumb to make their own decisions. And us smart people, we need to control what they do and micromanage their life. You know, look at the at the Biden administration, same mindset. They're coming out and say, well, if you have over 100 employees, well, you need to have this mandate. Why? Because you stupid entrepreneurs are too dumb to do it yourself. And your employees are too dumb to go down and voluntarily inject a foreign substance into their veins. So because we're so smart, much smarter than they are, we need to force them to do it. Mm -hmm. This is the mindset of the central planner, whether they like it or not, whether they're willing to admit to it or not. And that is rooted in authoritarianism. And you go back throughout history and you can see where that road leads. And it never ends well. And there's no reason why we should think that it will end well today unless we're able as a group uh, to get off this road to serfdom, call it. And that's the good news, is that there's, if you break things down uh, the way we just did with uh, people who believe in authoritarianism and people who believe in individualism, especially in the United States, I would argue that there are far more people that believe in individualism than authoritarianism. But unfortunately, right now, they're the people who are kind of calling the shots 
and trying to steer the mainstream narrative through uh, sensationalizing uh, what's happening through spin and through censorship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing I encourage the people listening to this right now to ask themselves is, is when you go back and look at history, you know, were the people who were in favor of censorship in the past, were they the good guys or the bad guys? <laughs> pretty simple such, question. Such a good question. Yeah. And I think that when we look back on what's happening today in 30, 40 years, or when the history books do in a hundred or 200 years, um, we're going to come to the same conclusion that the people who favor censorship are the bad guys. Uh, the people who favor safety over freedom are going to be on the wrong side of history. And the people who value freedom and individual liberty, they're going to be on the right side of history. Totally agree. And I, you know, I, in assessing this situation, you look at this dynamic that's playing out. And most of the time, I attribute those people in positions of power that are imposing these things on people doing so with, as you said, kind of an elitism, a, a, you know, feeling, feeling superior than the people that they're imposing this on or incompetence. You know, I don't generally attribute that much malice or let's say agenda, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So one, I'd like, love to get your take on that particular point, but maybe more broadly, what is it, why do you think society fractures into these two camps, authoritarian collectivism, individualism, and why do you think in particular it's happening right now? Well, I think to a certain degree, it's cyclical because, uh, again, just going back and looking at empires, how they rise and fall, it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's just hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And it just happens over and over and over and over and over again. And another thing that I'd, I'd like people to, or I'd encourage people to think through when you're trying to figure out and make sense of this insanity that we're living in right now and make sense of like the World Economic Forum Great Reset Agenda or the IMF or what's happening with Biden or Trudeau and, you know, why they're just parroting every single thing that Klaus Schwab says or, you know, why on earth that everyone, all of these central planners in the United States are completely ignoring natural immunity when it comes to these mandates. That's not even, they're not even doing that in Europe. Right? It's not that I agree with the mandates in Europe, but at least they're acknowledging right. uh, natural immunity. Uh, you know, we're not even bringing up the, the phrase here. And so, you know, is that about big pharma? Probably, you know, there, there's something to that. But there's so many variables. I think it's hard for people to get their head around and determine who is really uh, pulling the strings here, right? But I've given this a lot of thought. And... Going back and again, we'll reference history, you see that whether it was the Roman Empire, they're always battling the Persian Empire and battling the people from the north. And at the same time, the Romans are trying to, you know, extend their territory into northern Africa. And you had the Ming Dynasty, and you had, you know, Alexander the Great trying to conquer the world. And and you had, uh, you know, the Genghis Khan types, <laughs> right? And it, whether the Roman Empire was expanding or the Persian Empire or the Ottoman Empire, 
you always had this one guy that was just the driving force that just had this insatiable lust for power and just to conquer and dominate the world. You can say that was a good thing or a bad thing. I'm not here to debate that. But I think what we have to acknowledge is that now, today, the population is, let's say, is, let's say 10 times greater. So to think that we don't have any more of those Genghis Khan types or Alexander right. the Great types, you're kidding yourself. Of course we do. It's just now those Alexander the Great types or the, the Genghis Khan types, they can't control the world or further their power, increase their power with spears, swords, horses, elephants, chariots, you know, armies of 100,000 men. They have to do it in a different way. So I believe they're doing that today by controlling corporations, or let's just say influencing them to a great degree, again, uh, in a very similar way that they did in Germany during the 1930s, right? You had private property rights. The, the political party did not own the corporations, but they influenced them to such a great degree that it, might, it was really one and the same. Effectively, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you're one of those, we'll call them Genghis Khan types <laughs> today, you know, how do you increase your power? Well, you control those corporations. You look at the World Economic Forum and all their corporate partners, and it's all big tech. It's all the people that you would expect. And then you start listening to the words that those CEOs use. And I always use Mark Benioff as an example of that with Salesforce. R- read what he writes on his blog post, listen to what he says in his interviews. It's uh, the exact same thing, word for word. He uses the same verbiage. I think that's very important that uh, Klaus Schwab uses at the World Economic Forum. And they even have the same boogeyman. They set up the same people as public enemy number one. This would be Milton Friedman. So you kind of have to scratch your head and say, hmm, you know, you may like or dislike Milton Friedman, but uh, or you may say maybe he wasn't the greatest economist or whatever your view is, but you at least have to admit that the principles he stood up for, I mean, small government, uh, freedom, individual liberty, free market capitalism, that's something that we need more of today, not less of. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone who is demonizing Milton Friedman and his ideas, if you're someone who is literally demonizing, quote unquote, neoliberalism, which is the, the word they always use, you kind of have to scratch your head and kind of think twice about what that person's true motives are. And uh, so, again, my, my whole point there was to illustrate that if you believe we do have these people in our society today like we had a thousand years ago, like we had 5,000 years ago, but they can't really achieve their objectives through spears and, and horses and chariots. Uh, you have to ask yourself, how would they be achieving those ob- objectives today? And I think that makes a lot of sense as to why we saw the lockdowns and why we're potentially seeing these uh, unbelievable mandates today when you look at them through the lens uh, or when you look at them understanding that we're in the tightest labor market in human history, looking at the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So let's think about that. They do this, these lockdowns. Well, who does that wipe out? That wipes out the small business. 
okay, well, now we still have some mid-sized businesses at play. Maybe they got PPP loans. Well, how do you wipe them out? Okay, well, they're already struggling to find employees or dealing with all of these uh, sh shortages, supply shortages, all of these constraints on the global supply chains. And they're, every single one of them has a help wanted sign out there. Well, let's just make life even more difficult for them by forcing them to fire 10 to 20% of their staff. What, what's that going to do? Right? And I'm talking about the, the mandates that Biden came out with that said any business over 100 employees has to have these restrictions. So then what you're doing is you're, is you're trying to issue a knockout blow to small business and mid-sized business. Okay, well, this is very convenient if you want to control the world. Uh, why? Because you need to control the supply of goods and services to control societies. Okay, well, it's very hard to control millions and millions and millions and millions of small businesses, mom and pop shops. But it's, it's a, lot, a heck of a lot easier to control 100 global corporations. Mm -hmm. And think about what happened during the lockdowns. All these mom and pop businesses go bust, but we have demand staying the same, if not increasing, due to stimmy checks. Well, where is everyone getting their goods and services now? Oh, well, they just go to Amazon. So you see, all uh, what we're doing is, is, whether this is intentional or not, you be the judge. But what's effectively happening is they're consolidating all the power and all of the sale uh, of the goods and services to these larger and larger corporations, wiping out the small and mid-sized business. And then if those corporations are influenced by, let's say, the global elite, regardless of whether it was intentional or not, it has the same effect. Yeah. You know, I should go back and kind of correct what I said. I, the, the thing is, is like all in a, in a centralized system like this, the larger an organization gets, the more its incentives can result in, in things being imposed on people down the line. Everyone's vying to, to uh, make more money, to increase their market share. They're, everyone's playing to their incentives. And so, as you just said, you know, so I guess my, I do think there's very powerful incentives concentrated at the top that are causing a lot of this activity to happen. I guess my comment was, was more surprise, I guess, or not really surprised, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but just the, the tendency for so many people down the line to fall in line, like your useful idiots, like de Blasio and Justin Trudeau and all these people, like, I almost think they're, I don't give them enough credit to think that they're in on some grand scheme maybe that it strokes their ego to know they're in some kind of in group or whatever but i just I, I i see them as so incompetent that i feel like it is incompetence and of course arrogance and ego and elitism as well they get them to think that what's happening is actually what should be happening you know and and they don't their ego causes them to think that what they think should happen is what should happen and that's part of the problem with these institutions and the power that they have but in the case of something like Amazon, I mean, you think about it, lockdowns, like as you said, lockdowns and stimmy checks, that's great for Amazon. Mm -hmm. So when their yeah. lobbyists are in Washington, you know, they may not be part of some big cabal, but they may just sit around the boardroom table and be like, guys, do you want our lobbyists to kind of nudge on this lockdown stuff? Because yeah, and don't it's, forget it's, Bezos bought the post. 
Right, right. And, and so like, because that's going to mean 10 billion to our bottom line this year or, or whatever it is, right? And so you, and the, the, and this all comes back to the size and influence of government make creating those incentives, right? Because if, right. if right. Amazon couldn't go to that centralized government and say, hey guys, lock it down because we're going to make a shitload of ton of money, then they wouldn't. That's right? right. But the fact that that institution is there and it has so much power, inevitably those market actors that get to a certain scale and influence, they're going to be knocking on that door to try to get it to play to their incentives. And that's where you get all this crazy, same with the pharma companies, same with, you know, the, you know, all big companies, they all play that game. And it, usually to the detriment of the liberty and, and ultimately the lifestyle of the individual. Yeah. If you think about the solution for a lot of the problems we have today, uh, people just glance over it for whatever reason, but it's really smaller government. Yeah. I mean, you always hear how bad lobbyists are. Okay, well, just reduce the size of government and you're not going to have an issue with lobbyists because the government isn't going to have any control or power. So why would any of these corporations try to leverage that? They wouldn't. Also, we have this, we're in everyone uh, on the left and right. And I don't know why, but they have this idea that the way to fix government is just to get the right guy or girl in there. And if I just had my guy or girl in there, oh, well, well, we'd be off to the races, you know? Right. No, 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 no. And why is that? Because the larger or the more power government has, the more it's going to attract people who desire that power. It's going to attract people who want to have control over other people. Mm. See, I always use the example going back to, let's say, the early 1930s in Germany and the political party that I'm, I'm referring to, uh, they won the election in 1933 is either 33 or uh, 34, but the individual that, that, that won the election, we all know who I'm referring to. Uh, you have to ask your, obviously this person was a sociopath. Obviously this person was one of those Genghis Khan types. Uh, one of these people that have an insatiable lust for power and control. But you have to ask yourself if at the time the German government had about the same amount of power, let's say, that the United States government had in the early 1800s, would that person even have wanted to be president or whatever they, they called them in, in Germany, chancellor or whatever it was? No, he wouldn't have any, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with that job because it doesn't give him any power. <laughs> so the only way to get better politicians long-term and consistently is if you reduce the, the amount of power the federal government has. I mean, just look at the group of politicians we have now compared to when we had very small government. Look, look at the group of politicians we have now compared to uh, the politicians we had, let's say, in the late 1780s or the 1790s, I'd like to remind everyone that they had to twist George Washington's arm on multiple occasions for, uh, for over a year just to be the president. He didn't, want, he didn't want anything to do with it, right? Can you imagine any of the politicians that we have today in Washington on either side and having to actually twist their arm to be the president of the United States and turn down that power and control? Well, why was that? 
it's it's not that people back during that time just were morally and ethically superior uh, to the people that we have in the United States today. It's just that government attracted a completely different group with different priorities and, and, and a different mindset, you see? So if we want to go back to the times when we had politicians like George Washington in office, the, it, we're not going to get there if we keep government the same size because we're not going to have any options that are like George Washington. We have to reduce the size of the federal government back to what it was, let's say, in the 1800s. And then magically, what you're going to see is we get a lot better politicians as a result. Sure. But this is the age-old problem. How do you stop a government from growing? And this is where usually Bitcoin collapse. might enter the conversation. Yeah, right? usually collapse. And that sure. goes back to that, that cyclical process that I talked about before where hard times you know, make strong men and whatnot. And yeah. I think we're, it, it's blatantly obvious that we're in the part of that cycle where we have had the good times that have created the weak men, uh, figuratively speaking, and that's where we are in the United States today. So unfortunately, these, these weak men or the, the weak society has uh, inevitably, if history is any teacher, is going to create hard times. And then and only then will the uh, phoenix be able to kind of rise again and uh, take our society to the, the next level. But you've got to go through some uh, growing pains, if you will. And I think right now, although it, there, it's not a foregone conclusion that we turn into some sort of authoritarian, uh, totalitarian police state, we've been on the road to serfdom, if you will, quite a few times in the United States. And we've actually hopped off the road, thank goodness. And uh, I always reference the 1940s. And most people don't realize this, but the reason Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom was to offer a counter-narrative to what he saw in the United States. And that was this push towards central planning. Because we won the war with central planning, and therefore, why on earth can't we run the economy? I mean, it worked so well, defeating the, the, the Nazis or the Japanese or whatever. So why wouldn't it work just as well micromanaging the economy from a, a central platform, right? This was the narrative that was extremely popular in the United States after World War II. So Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom as a counter-narrative, and he pointed out after the fact that the United States was able to, to kind of wake up and see the direction they were headed and kind of get off that road and back on that path that valued freedom more than they valued safety. Same thing in the 1970s and the, early, the late 1960s, you really had a push towards socialism. And that's when Friedman really uh, came up and started talking about it, doing the free to choose series and you know, doing all those college tours and whatnot in the 1970s. He was on Donahue and just really trying to, and he's writing books about it, of course, really trying to spread the message. And obviously there was a lot of people part of that movement, but freedom or excuse me, Friedman was massively influential. And as a result of Friedman, you had Reagan, you had Thatcher, 
Now, I'm not saying those two individuals were perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the, the good news is the United States was once again able to get off that road to freedom, or excuse me, that road to serfdom and back on a road to freedom. And I don't think that you know myself or any of us on, on YouTube, the content creators, are uh, at the level of a freedman or a Hayek, but I think collectively, as a group, with the power of the internet, we can be, and, and we can change the narrative just like they changed it in the 1970s and the 1940s. And I think we economically, we will have to go through some hard times. I'm not saying we can get off that path uh, because it, it's the heroin addict. The only way for them to get better is to go through the withdrawals. There, there's no easy way to do it. But I think that we can go through kind of that recession, if you will, to, to get out all the malinvestment and the misallocation of resources while may, at least maintaining our, the, the freedom we have enjoyed uh, that we have grown up with. Uh, at least in my lifetime in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and what we saw in the early 2000s. Uh, so, and I think that's the best case scenario. You know, we, we've got to go through a debt deleveraging, whether it's going to be a deflationary deleveraging or an inflationary deleveraging. There's no way around that. Uh, but if, if we can do it while maintaining our, our freedom and liberties, I think that's going to be a win. Yeah, I think two things, you know, as you're saying all this that stand out in my mind that really make this because as you say, this recurring uh, cycle seems to, well, seems to recur, right? And two things are different this time. One is there's Bitcoin, right? And we can break into that in a second. There's a, a, there's a money that the government cannot co-opt or seems very unlikely that they can co-opt it. And to what degree does that stop that inevitable process of government being established, even under great principles like it was in the United States, but power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, you get in, you get control of the money printer and then the whole thing goes to shit. What happens if that is no longer the case and that can be stopped? But simultaneously, I guess on the bad side of this equation, nuclear weapons exist in the world now. And when, when things get hairy, you know, and we're, we're, when you get economic collapse and breakdown all over the world on a global basis this time, because the world is so connected, interconnected, trade, et cetera, uh, the desperate moves that typically come out of those circumstances that lead to wars and conflict, et cetera, how does nuclear weapons being a part of the calculus change you know, the dynamics of this, the situation this time around? So I don't know if you have comments on those, but I'd love to, you know, obviously in the Bitcoin space, we put a lot of weight in the idea that once you get money out of the hands of government, as, as Hayek has that famous quote about, that's a major step toward avoiding a lot of the pitfalls that, that you just articulated. So what are your thoughts on those two things? It is, but I don't think it, it gets rid of the cycle. And I, this was back in 2020. I, I had this quote that I um, put out on Twitter. It was, it was a quote from me, but I, I put it on, on Twitter. <laughs> it's something to the effect that um, perfect money that is owned by imperfect human beings in an imperfect world, although it is perfect, it will always behave imperfectly. Mm -hmm. And I what I, I meant by that is, it was something to that effect. Yeah. What I meant by that is we still, at the end of the day, human beings, 
uh, own the Bitcoin. And therefore, you know, let's just say that we go into this world where there, where we decentralize banks, and then we take that power away from the government for them to create, let's say, fiat currency, or there's a constraint on the government and on the banking system, a lot like there was with gold, but this time it's even better because the, the gold doesn't need to be stored in these centralized entities called banks. You know, can, you can just store it in your back pocket. Um, we're still going to have a war. We're still going to have the cycle that I referred to earlier of hard times, creating strong men, create uh, good times, create weak men, create hard times. And unfortunately, in hard times, I think people are going to go back to what they've done before. And that's just expand the money supply for a welfare slash warfare state. Now, I, I would agree that it's harder to do that when things are uh, decentralized, but they're still going to tax you. And let's just say that Bitcoin was money and that was all that was used. Let's say we don't have dollars, yen, rubles anymore. All we have is Bitcoin. Uh, the government will still uh, tax and then you've got to pay them Bitcoin. And then when it hits the fan or when they want to go to war, you know, like we've seen in the past, they'll go ahead and just uh, abandon the, let's call it the Bitcoin standard. And then they will go ahead and create, um, let's just call it paper Bitcoin. And, you know, Bitcoin IOUs, just like they did with the banking system with uh, when they first started fractional reserve banking a long, long time ago. Uh, you know, they'll go into that system. So I think Bitcoin would fix the problem for uh, maybe several decades. But eventually, we're going to get back to where we are today, where, where you still have that problem, because at the end of the day, we're all just human beings. And I don't think Bitcoin fixes that. Uh, it fixes a lot of things, but it doesn't make us uh, impervious to error right. <laughs> or emotional decisions, let's say. Well, that's absolutely true. You know, although, you know, the, some one of the things that I cover a lot on this show is digging into the psychology, the philosophy of Bitcoin, broadly speaking, and how interacting with Bitcoin and owning Bitcoin and learning about Bitcoin does seem to have these powerful transformative effects on people. I don't know if, if that's the first time you've heard that, but it seems to be quite a consistent trend. And it's it, obviously that's a very strange thing to even say, right? Which it's is why massive. I'm so fascinated I, I think it. that's right now, honestly, that's the, the huge value proposition for Bitcoin. I think above and beyond the price, or I think the the price direction of Bitcoin, I don't think is is really that interesting. Uh, I think what's a lot more interesting about Bitcoin is is number one how you can use it as a Plan B, because I think that people who do value freedom um, are most likely going to be considered domestic terrorists moving forward, mm -hmm. and we could move into an environment where it's very difficult to have a bank account. And if we have a central bank digital currency, if they ban cash as an example, and you cannot get a bank account because you said something wrong on Twitter or Facebook, where's your purchasing power? So I think that's, I think that's a great argument why everyone, I don't care what you think the price is going to do, uh, should own Bitcoin to make sure that they've got a hedge if, if they are kind of, uh, let's say, booted out of the system. 
um, you know, but as far as, um, you know, we were talking about Bitcoin being global money and, and then, you know, taking that power away from the politicians because it creates an environment where government would have to be uh, smaller to a certain degree. But it also takes you down a path of why freedom and liberty is important. And I, I think it's kind of a progression. You know, what I saw out at the Bitcoin conference, as an example, was uh, there were a lot of people there that were just there because they want a quick way to get rich. I mean, let's just be honest. But there were a lot of people there that I talked to that they initially were um, started to study and research Bitcoin because they wanted to get rich. They saw the price doubling or whatever. But then they started to realize what made Bitcoin special in the sense that it is, if it's, if it's used correctly by, if it were used by perfect humans, then it, it would be sound money. You know, it would be, be a decentralized approach. And then they start going down that rabbit hole. They say, well, why is sound money good? Mm. Or maybe why is sound money bad? And then that leads them to maybe uh, the Austrian school of economics. And they start to understand that better. And then from there, they start to understand why individualism is something we should strive for, uh, why we should value freedom more than we value safety. And so many people on my YouTube channel have, uh, have asked me, you know, what can I do, George, to stand up and fight for freedom and liberty? What can I do? I don't have a YouTube channel or uh, people say, well, I, I might not be you know, I, I don't have the education, not that I have any education at all, but they uh, think that they need some sort of, you know, doctorate degree. Yeah. yeah, credentials, exactly, to talk about uh, freedom and, and actually move the needle and change people's minds. And one thing I always encourage them to do are just share videos of Dr. Ron Paul. Because regard, even if you hate his ideas, if you were just an AOC type, you got to like Ron Paul. I mean, you, you can't say, oh, that guy, he's terrible. You know? I mean, he's such a nice guy. Right. And you have to respect the, his level of integrity throughout the decades of being right in the middle of the swamp. And yeah. I think everyone, even, you know, Hillary Clinton had nice things to say about Ron Paul that I, I, you know, I, I think she said this, where she was saying that, you know, she respected the fact that he was very uh, principled in how he would always vote and whatnot. And I, I think that's when he was very popular with the, the online crowd, you know, mm -hmm. in his in his last bid for for president. But I th I say start there, but also maybe with your friends and, and family members that are kind of your typical CNN watcher. Start talking to them about Bitcoin and gold, and it, you know, it, Bitcoin's great because it's gone up in price, so you can sink the hook with everyone's secret desire to get rich quick. But what you're really doing in a roundabout way is introducing them to the value of sound money, Austrian economics, freedom, and liberty. And just let them go down that rabbit hole themselves, where most people's approach is just trying to beat people over the head with some let's go Brandon meme on, on Facebook and when you do that with your lefty friends or whatever, they're, they're just going to, you're not going to move the needle. You're not going to influence them at all.
but if you're maybe able to introduce them to Bitcoin as a philosophy, or, or maybe initially as a get rich quick thing, but you know they, they go down that rabbit hole, they understand the philosophy. The next thing you know, you may talk to them in three months and they would have gone on their own journey and come to the same conclusion and see the world the same way you see the world. And that's that we really are, uh, our freedoms, liberty are under attack and that's a big deal and that we should stand up for freedom. So I think Bitcoin is a, a great gateway drug to better understand the value of freedom and liberty. I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, as we often say, come for number, go up, stay for the revolution or stay for the sound money or stay for the Austrian there you economics. Go. That's a great way is. to say it. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think the Bitcoin, you know, myself and the, the hardcore Bitcoiners, another element of all those benefits you get from going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is a renewed sense of hope. And, you know, the, perhaps there's nothing more transformative to your individual perception and your own contentness and happiness in the world than thinking that something better lies ahead in the future. And, you know, what you said about this not resolving those cycles, you know, we'll have to wait and see, you know, those cycles of hard men creating uh, or good men creating uh, good times or strong men creating good times and that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, that may very well still play out because you get, even if you generate really great times and they're very well established, well, then the next generation is living in comfort and they take and they're it gonna for granted. Forget. And, they're going right. to forget. See, let's just say that we have this Bitcoin movement. It's all around uh, sound money and small government. And uh, let's just say uh, 30 years from now, uh, society is, is, is far richer uh, and has a higher standard of living as a result. Well, those kids, they're not going to remember the revolution. They're not going to remember the beginning of Bitcoin. They're not going to remember the diamond hands. They're not going to remember the Ron Pauls or the. No, but the question the will be how much can they fuck it up, right? Because if the money, you know, if the money can't be co-opted, if it can't oh, be it can, confiscated. Though. It can, it can. If you're using gold, uh, Bitcoin as base money, they can still, just like they did with gold, they can still have IOUs on it. Well, then it's a matter of best practices. If you're not verifying your own, your own transactions, then you're. Yeah, but the You're government still has Bitcoin because they're taxing you. They and, could, uh, but the, 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 the point is, is like, it's still a different landscape. It's, a, it's an altogether novel landscape. Human psychology and human behavior may, the similar things may play out. But what we have to contend with in our relationships with one another, economically speaking, through the money will be, you know, this is the contention of Bitcoin. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is, you know, sovereign individual talks about the logic of violence and how that changes. And when you can't just... Ease, as easily steal from people, how much violence and aggression do you get in society? How much does it get built into the political system, et cetera? We don't have the time to really rip into that right now, but let's just say that I think that the circumstance will be fundamentally different. And what I was getting at is like, and I met a lot of these people at the Bitcoin conference too, that renewed sense of hope, right? When you looked out in the world, maybe in 2008, you think, oh my God, this is so fucked up. How are we ever going to change this? And then with 2020 and lockdowns and mandates, you're like, this is we're going way off the rails. That sense of hope is keeping people invigorated with a sense that, no, I can see this through. I can build into this. I can, you know, protect myself, my family. I can establish freedom, or at least I'm, you know, I have a strong enough weapon that I'm motivated to fight for it because otherwise I might've just give up in the face of all this madness. Um, but yeah, I think you know, people need to be realistic about it. And what I mean by that is uh, regardless of how much Bitcoin you own, I think you need to realize that you're going to be poor in the next few years. Uh, you just are. 
And if you don't so. come to that conclusion, uh, then I, I think you'll, if you're not, you you're not looking one? at, what's that? Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Absolutely. So I've, uh, went down to my local whole foods the other day and I, I go there all the time and their shelves have openings everywhere. You know, they have probably 20% fewer goods than they had in 2019. So it doesn't matter how much Bitcoin I own. doesn't matter how much my net worth is. doesn't matter how much gold I own, how much silver. That doesn't matter. I don't have access to the same amount of goods and services that I had in 2019. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, well, not unfortunately, I think this is the way it should be. But at the end of the day, wealth is not a measurement of how much Bitcoin you have. It's a measurement of how much goods and services you have access to. And unfortunately, regardless of what happens to the price of Bitcoin over the next two or three years, I believe that we are going to have access to fewer, a lot fewer uh, goods and services. Therefore, people need to be prepared to be poorer and have the standard of living for society in general go down as a result, regardless of what the nominal price of your portfolio is doing uh, with the assets you own. Right. George, last two questions, because we're coming up on time here. But what, what I was coming around to on the, the hope piece was just that if you don't believe that, you know, the characteristics of Bitcoin really materially alter kind of the course of human history, right? So a lot of the dynamics we've touched on are fundamentally altered, if not completely uh, done away with. Um, what is it that keeps you uh, hopeful about the future? And how do you maintain a perspective in light of all of this craziness that surrounds us all the time now, how do you keep uh, striving toward a better day, you know, on the horizon with that type of perspective? And then number two, just practically speaking, if we have any time left over, um, you know, if you're anticipating this decrease in wealth because of the the interruption in production and services and dislocation of the economy, and central planning, yeah, yeah, um, that that being the cause to it all, what are you? How are you? planning on weathering the next couple of years in that kind of environment? So it goes back to what I was saying that I believe there are more of us than there are of them. And what I'm talking about specifically is people who, who believe in individualism and that that should be the focus of a society is the, is the actual individual and their rights. And there are a lot fewer authoritarians and if you go back and, and, and look at just not just U.S. history, but history in general, you'll see that there have been many times when the masses have stood up and they've won. And they've said, you know, we're just not going to take this anymore. Now, that set, you know, a great example would be the Berlin Wall. Let's use that, right? So uh, the, the people were just basically locked up in a cage, very similar to what we see in Australia right now. Uh, in fact, I would argue Australia is even worse uh, than East Germany was when they had the Berlin Wall. But let's just uh, say, you know, you're there, Berlin Wall, you've been, you've been living under this, this uh, totalitarian police state for the entirety of your life. And there was a certain point where hundreds of people, although everyone felt the same way, there were hundreds of people that said, you know what, I don't care if I get shot. I value freedom more than I value safety. And I'm going to go right out there and stand at that wall. And regardless of what the guard says, I'm going to stay there. I'm not going to move. And first, you had a few hundred people go out. 
But then what happened is thousands of other people saw them do that. And they said, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it. And I'm sick and tired of living under a place in a police state, just like my fellow Germans. And if they can do it, I can do it. I'm going to go out there as well. And then you have thousands of people, then tens of thousands of people going out to this wall. And it gets to a point where these guards, sure, they have the guns. But for every one guard, there's 2,000 people that are pissed, by the way. <laughs> and so if you're the guard, what do you do? You have to drop the gun. They drop the guns. The wall comes crashing down. But what happened after that? Did they have you know, just this magical economic boom? In the next two or three years? No, 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 no. They had it had to all come crashing down, and uh, economically, it was very difficult. Now, again, the Phoenix did rise out of the ashes in three, four, five, six years. Now, all of a sudden, you know, because you're building on a stronger foundation, their economy really starts to gain traction, and the standard of living gets far better than it ever was under those terrible conditions of East Germany, but it doesn't happen the day the wall comes down, you see? And, and, and that's my kind of the message I was trying to relay is that we should stand up and fight for freedom because the alternative is that we go into East Germany or we become Stalinist Russia, right? So it, it, at the very least, let's get off that path, but realize that from an economic standpoint, we're, we're going to have problems until we get this leverage out of the system. You know, we've got all this misallocation of resources and, and malinvestment. And uh, regardless of whether or how quickly we go on to a sound money system, that's got to get out of the, uh, of the mix. You know, that's got to get out of society. And that's where you, you go through some hard times. But we just got to realize that it's worth it to get to the light at the end of the tunnel. Totally agree. Do we have time to get your comments on how you're going to play this next, that process? Should it play out that way? I mean, yeah, how do you sure. game plan this out for yourself? Yeah, I, I think what you've, like I said, you, you got to, I mean, even if you're Peter Schiff, I think you got to own some Bitcoin because it just, <laughs> although, you know, we, and I own Bitcoin and I, I'm bullish on, on the price, but again, that's not the main reason I have it. I, I'm mm -hmm. mo far more concerned about uh, people who value freedom being kind of excommunicated from the banking system. And, you know, I was talking to Caitlin Long on my show, and we specifically had this discussion. I said, well, if you're, if you don't have a bank account, how do you buy Bitcoin? She goes, legally, you can't. And so I'm like, okay, well, you better buy at least some Bitcoin now, because if you get kicked out of the banking system, you, you can't, then how are you going to get your Bitcoin? Right? It, it becomes far more difficult, let's say. And yeah. then how do you just have that purchasing power that you can throw in your back pocket and go to XYZ country if you need to? I mean, I mean, I think it's, it's, do you think about a, a very important part of a plan B? Yeah, for sure. Do you think very about access to food and water and, and supply chain disruptions and how to weather all that? Yeah. Well, as far as me personally, uh, what I do is I talk to people who are a heck of a lot smarter than I do, than I am. And I say, okay, what are you concerned with? especially hedge fund managers, because they really can't, they don't have time to be biased for one political party or, or the other. They have to just pretty much call it like it is. And so I'll have conversations with these guys. And one of their biggest concerns are the, the supply chains for food, 
especially in the United States, where everything is so consolidated to these five corporations that uh, provide like 80 or 90 percent of our food supply. Uh, so they're looking at countries much more like Colombia or uh, Costa Rica would be an example, where you go out to the farming communities that provide the food for the, the city that are maybe five miles away from the city, and they're not specialized to where all they grow is corn or all they grow is oranges or something. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll go to these little farms and they'll grow everything. So you have that a, a much more direct food supply. So as far as my plan B, I'm, I'm looking at countries like that, but then I'm really taking it, I'm playing it by ear because the environment in the world right now, not just in the United States, but in the entire world is so fluid. Mm -hmm. We have no idea what it's going to look like in January of 2022. So I think the best thing that you can do is kind of say, okay, where are the pockets of freedom in the world today? Okay, well, you've got a few states like Idaho, uh, maybe Arizona, Texas, Florida. And then you've got a couple countries, maybe you want to throw Sweden in there, you want to throw uh, Tanzania, if uh, you're in that part of the world. But outside of that, there isn't much personal yeah. freedom. Yeah. So what I'm doing is I'm just trying to park myself in one of those areas where I don't have to worry about wearing a mask into a grocery store, as an example, and then just play it by ear. And then, you know, try to have some options, try to have some Bitcoin. Uh, try to have some gold, try to have some watches. Uh, you know, I think that one thing I always encourage everyone to do that live in the United States or in Europe is I believe that we're going to move into a time frame where we're going to have a lot more social unrest and a lot more of these riots and looting that we saw in 2020. I mean, if, if you understand Bitcoin, if your audience says they, uh, they understand why, because We've created this economy that completely revolves around asset prices going up and we financialized the economy. Mm -hmm. So unless the Fed continues to do what they have done and that's try to prop up asset prices, uh, the whole economy comes crashing down. So uh, th their only game plan is to exacerbate, exacerbate the wealth divide. So that means more rooting or more looting, more riots. If you're someone that believes in stagflation, uh, what has been going up in price? It's been housing, it's been energy, it's been food. So historically speaking, what's the line in the sand where people grab the the pitchforks and the torches? It's when they can't afford to put food on the table. It's yeah. when they can't afford to put a roof over their head. So uh, my point is, I think something very simple that everyone can do above and beyond just own Bitcoin is have an RV for heaven's sakes, you know, like five grand, like 10 grand, <laughs> take a little bit of your, Bitcoin or, or <laughs> take a little bit of your cash, better. Take, take a few of your dollars yeah. and buy an RV with a good diesel truck, have it parked in your driveway. And, you know, people kind of laugh at it, but they weren't laughing at that back in 2020 uh, when BLM or Antifa was rioting in your local area. And you've got two kids that are under the age of 10 and a wife or a husband that, that you want to protect, you know, you just throw them in there, you go up to the, the, the mountains or whatever, and just, at least it buys you time to say, okay, what am I going to do next? Another thing I'd strongly encourage your viewers to do is, is look yourself in the mirror 
and decide what your line in the sand is for the government. Like as an example, let's say you've got some viewers in the state of California and they say, I know it's bad here. I under, I hate Gavin Newsom just as much as the other guy. I know taxes are bad here, but my family lives here. My kids live here. Uh, I have my whole network, my social network, if you will, is all right here in California. I've lived here my entire life. There's three generations of Gammons or Johnsons or whatever that live here. And it's going to have to get really bad in order for me to leave. Okay, great. But there is a line in the sand. That needs to be premeditated. You have to say, okay, what will the what can the government do that would force me to, to move to Texas or Florida? Because if it's not premeditated, then what you'll notice is that line in the sand keeps getting pushed further and further and further and further away as yeah. the government becomes more and more draconian. I mean, we see this happening right now in Australia. If I would have told those people that uh, what's your line in the sand in 2019, if they would have even thought about it back then, they most likely would have said, once the government locks me in a cage and won't let me out for more than an hour a day. That, totally. I'm guessing that would have been a lot of people's line in the sand, right? Yeah. So if, if you have that, and if you think through that rationally, then you set up an, a, a game plan for if that does happen, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Then once they cross that line, if they do, then you can just rationally say, okay, I've de I decided this five years ago, or I decided this last year or six months ago, whatever. I'm going to go ahead and start executing my plan B. And it's, it's not going to be reactionary. Yeah. It's, it's going to be something that was well thought out. And now all you have to do, you exclude the emotion. Now all you have to do is execute. And very few people do that, but I think that would be wise. I couldn't agree. I think that's phenomenal advice. And I've actually been <clears throat> saying that to certain friends and family because it keeps you from being the frog that's boiling in water, right? That's it, right. It, it, you, you say, as you say, when you're thinking rationally before things get crazy, this is the triggering event. If this line gets crossed, we act. And, that's right. and as, you, as you said, I mean, we are so past the lines that 99% of the population of the world would have articulated as their line, but 24 months ago, right? I mean, yeah, it's just and, completely insane. Yeah. And see, that goes back to there being more of us than there are of them. And you think about how those brave individuals took down the wall, the, uh, the Berlin wall. If, if more people had had that line in the sand, I think more people, more Americans would be pissed at what's happening today. And we are seeing a lot of pushback and that's fantastic. But I think we would have seen even more pushback during the, the lockdowns as an example, if people would have you know, dis determined what their line in the sand was back in 2019. The thing is, is that, that line in the sand keeps, let's say we have A, B, C, D, E, F. It keeps F as F, right? Whereas if you don't use that, going from A to B and then B to C and then C to D, those are relatively trivial steps. And you, that's the frog boiling in water. You think, oh, it's just a little bit step from there. But if you, if, if you're lying in the stand, if, if you have a line in the sand, then when you reach it, there's just that mental framework you have that allows you to realize like, this is when it goes too far because yeah, it's, I, I, yeah, my buddy, Andrew Henderson always says, 
it's better to be a year early than a day late. Absolutely. And there's tons of books from 1930s Germany, 1940s Germany that say this exact thing that talk about people who are, you know, ringing the alarm bells at that time. And, and these very same stories were emerging then as they are now. If you don't mind, you know, I did a, a presentation at the New Orleans Investment Conference uh, last week. And I use this quote that I think really nails it. And it'll illustrate what we're talking about. I think very well. Let me try to find yeah. it here. Yeah, here it is. So I'll just read this quote. It's got a picture attached to it of these two uh, Jewish folks that were in, uh, we'll call it Germany in the late 1930s. And there was a documentary that was done called The Last Days, where they interviewed a lot of the Jewish folks that lived in uh, Germany during the late 1930s. And here's what these people said. People wonder, how is it that we didn't do something? We didn't run away. We didn't hide. Well, things didn't happen at once. Things happened very slowly. So each time a new law came out or a new restriction, we said, well, just another thing, it'll blow over. When we had to wear the yellow star, be outside, then we started to worry. Mm -hmm. So if your line in the sand, hopefully, would have preceded the yellow star, you would have done the right thing and got out of Dodge in time. And what I said at that investment conference, and I would maintain that, is I think the, the yellow star of our day and age are the the, we'll call them the medicine mandates. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the government in Germany, the way they manipulated the, the populace to kind of see things their way is through this propaganda effort that included setting up a boogeyman. Uh, that's how they unified the majority of Germans as one of the ways, is they had to have a common enemy. Yeah. So we know what the common enemy, the boogeyman, the public enemy number one was in Germany. Uh, I think that public enemy number one is going to be the, the people who choose not to get the medicine, let's say, or mm -hmm. people who value freedom more than they value liberty. That's going to be the, the boogeyman that the global elite and the politicians, the useful idiots, will choose to target to try to unify uh, the masses of uh, Americans against this, this group. But again, the, the good news is I think there's a heck of a lot more of us than there are of them. So if we just wake up and understand that, uh, you know, what our line in the sand is, and hopefully so we can see them cross that, then we can use civil disobedience to stand up for what we think is right and, uh, and, and get back on the road to freedom. Well said, man. Uh, and I think, you know, having that line in the sand, being adaptable, having options and having a plan should that line get crossed is incredible advice because, you know, even though Dodge is pretty much everywhere these days, you know, it's not like in Germany in the thirties where you could just skip a border and maybe you're in a, a different place. I mean, as we've been discussing, yeah. this is a very global thing. So it's a bit trickier, but the more options you have, the more adaptable you are, the better the outcome is likely to be. So I think that's yep. great advice. 
I'm sure we could talk about this for a few more hours, George, but I, I'll let you go this time. I appreciate the time. I also appreciate the work that you're doing to educate people, to help people develop um, more balanced uh, perspective on all this stuff and give them some more information to work with. I think that's part of waking people up. So I, I commend you for that. Um, in terms of directing people to your stuff before we shut it down, where would you like people to go if they want to learn more about you or your work? Oh, they can just Google my name. If you're someone who's uh, really likes the the macroeconomic stuff and and trying to learn that, I'd encourage you to go to the George Gammon channel, uh, the whiteboard videos. If you're someone who wants kind of more news and uh, through the lens of freedom and liberty and kind of the Austrian school of economics, to what we were talking about, you can go to the Rebel Capitalist channel. Awesome. Well, George, um, we'll do this again sometime, hopefully uh, in brighter days, but take care of yourself until then. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay.